Turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, where we will be looking this morning at verses 8 through 11. Now, I did start out the week much more ambitious than that, but I didn't get too far into the week when I realized that was kind of foolish, because there's just way too much in these first four verses, in in 8 through 11, and it's really just one big, incredibly important idea that needs fleshing out, and it's provocative. It, It is shocking. That That's Part of the reason why I titled the sermon as I did, the argument Paul makes in these verses, in essence, says that it's possible for the most moral, upright person you know to be just as bad off as a godless heathen. Now let that sink in just a bit. Someone scrupulously following every detail that they can of God's law, but lacking true faith in Christ. So if you were here last week, that would be uh, John Wesley that that I read you a little excerpt about, right? He was one of the most godly folks around in his days at Oxford, he was one of the founding members of the Holy Club, like literally, right? Doing mercy ministry left and right in the prisons, sharing the gospel of Christ, but was himself not God's adopted son at that point because he didn't have faith in Christ alone. He was no better off, according to Paul's argument today, than someone living with reckless disregard for the law. That's what Paul's getting at in these verses. That's what we need to unpack. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. May God bless the hearing and the teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, would you indeed be our helper in these moments? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you cast your light on this same word that you inspired so many years ago? Would you help our hearts and our minds to understand it? Would you cause it by your power to sink deep down for great effect? Not just in our intellect, but in our hearts and ultimately in our very lives. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing we need to do is to get our bearings again, to remember our context of where we are in this letter. 
this letter where Paul is writing to Christians in Galatia in an area where he went and planted churches a number of years ago. He's writing because he's upset because Jews have come in after him and told these new believers, these pagans who converted to Christianity, Jews have come in and told these new believers that if they want to be complete as Christians, if they want to be serious, committed Christians, they will, in fact, they need to add their obedience to all of the Mosaic Law. They need to add that to their faith in Christ. And so here's the abbreviated and and visual version of what they were teaching, of what, in fact, so many believe today. So many, even in the church, understand Christianity to be, all right, you place your faith in Christ, and you obey, and you are saved. Y'all, that is what 90% of folks believe out there, and unfortunately what so many even in the church believe. Place your faith in Christ, do your best to obey, and in the end, hopefully, that will result in salvation. This is what has been taught in Galatia after Paul was there, and it has sent him over the edge. He's indignant. He's, he's beside himself. He's almost at a loss for words, but we have read a few of his words that he's managed to come up with. This is not the gospel that he came to Galatia to proclaim, his gospel, the one true gospel, which is on this next slide. The one true gospel is that faith in Christ is salvation. That faith in Christ plus nothing else equals salvation. And that salvation in turn will lead to, will even produce our obedience. That's the one true gospel that Paul proclaimed. That's the gospel that we proclaim. That our salvation rests entirely and completely on the finished work of Christ. On His righteous life, on His sin-bearing death on the cross, on His resurrection from the grave on the third day that's embraced and received only by faith as a free gift if we will but come to Him and admit our need and believe in our hearts that He has provided the solution to our need for us. That's the Gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians. That's the Gospel that, getting into our passage today, verse 8, freed them from their slavery. That's the Gospel that did it. Because they were enslaved by their belief in pagan deities and in their pagan practices. So you've got three points in your outline in the bulletin to help you follow along. Let's move now into the first point. What is Paul so concerned about in these verses? What has him so riled up? Right, you can read there in, in verse 9. Part of his disbelief. How can you turn back again? You read that and you, it would be easy to come away from that and think, oh, are they 
reverting back to their pagan beliefs and practices. Is that what what Paul is upset about here? He says, turn back again. Is that what's going on with the Galatians? No, it's not. What Paul continues to be gravely concerned about here has been the same thing he's been concerned about the whole letter. And you see that really well summarized back in chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles open, flip over to chapter 2, verse 16. It's up on the screen if you don't have that. right? So here it is in a nutshell. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, let me squeeze it in three times in 18 words or so, because by works of the law no one will be justified. This is what Paul is so upset about. He's upset. He's beside himself because these Galatian Christians have been duped into thinking that their justification, to use the big theological word, their being okay with God, depended on their performance, on, on their works of the law, on their adhering to and following the law, which includes but is not limited to those things that you see in verse 10 that he mentions, right? The days and the feasts and the festivals that they're observing, the I's that they're dotting, the T's that they're trying to cross. They think that by doing these things, they're completing their salvation, right? Jesus got it so close, let me just add a little bit to finish it out. And and we've already discussed earlier in this letter that that adding anything to your faith in Jesus is not addition, but is actually subtraction. That that Jesus plus anything leaves you with nothing. And, And so here, Paul is saying, doing that, adding to it, is actually a second form of slavery. All right, so he says there in 8, you, you've, been, you've been freed from your slavery, you, you were enslaved, right, to these that are not actually gods. And Paul is saying that performance of the law is actually a second form of slavery. If we find faith in Christ to be insufficient, if we don't believe that what Jesus did was really enough, that, that it was complete, that it was finished, although he said it is finished, then we set our hopes on whatever it is that we're adding to that faith in order to to reach that sense of completion. And we become enslaved all over again. Whatever our hopes are placed in controls us. It becomes every bit as much a slave master. See, if our hope is in our performance, then our performance is always looming over us. And the questions are always there in the back of our minds. Have I done enough? What I, what I did do, was it, was it good enough? Does it measure up? 
And we're, of course, going to look around because that's what we do. And we're going to compare and we're going to say, I thought it was enough, but it looks like they're doing more. And I might not be okay. See, placing your hope in your performance is slavery, plain and simple. And to plug this back into the most recent context of where we've been in Galatians, in in the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, right? We're not slaves. We're adopted daughters and sons of God, meant to enjoy liberty and freedom, not bondage and slavery. And and so let's ease into into the second point on the outline. Slavery to your religious performance is no better than slavery to pagan deities and practices. And it might just be worse. Slavery to religious performance might even be worse than slavery to trying to keep the law. Right. That is the, the shocking, provocative part of Paul's argument here. So let's unpack that a little bit. His question in verse 9. How can you turn back again? Right. And again, this is what might cause us to think. Oh, he's afraid that they're going to go back to worshiping the pagan deities. They're going to go back to all these horrible, unmentionable pagan practices that they had. But there's no record of that in Galatians. There's no record of any of them turning back to any of those things. What there is mention of is their turning to works of the law, of of adding those to their faith in Christ. So why does Paul say, turn back again? Because he's equating the two. He's saying that adding your performance to your faith in Christ is on par with worshiping pagan deities. Why in the world would Paul say that? Think about it just a second. These churches in Galatia, if they added a strict adherence to God's law, to their faith in Christ, what would these churches look like? They'd be the most buttoned up, moral, upright, godly looking folks out there. They'd be the most upstanding citizens around. They'd be the people we all desperately wanted our children to grow up and be like. And Paul says, that's slavery. That's bondage. And I can't believe you would go there again. Verse 9. right? He says, I can't believe you'd go back to the weak and worthless elementary principles. Now, we saw that phrase last week in verse 3, elementary principles. And last week, from the context of those verses, it seems most likely that Paul uses that phrase, and he's referring to the law. 
And and same again in this week, these verses, uh, the law is in view. But I think Paul is being purposefully broad in his language there. These elementary principles, because they can also refer to the things that the Galatians were enslaved to before they came to Christ. Right? Verse 8, to those that by nature are not gods. Right? So the elements, the uh, earth and fire and water and, and air, right? Th- those were all very entwined with the pagan deities. Right? Every, everything, every physical property had, had a god. Right? Uh, fertility had a god. And so if you were trying to conceive, you would pray to, to, to the god of fertility. Right? If you were going to war, if it was harvest time. Right? Everything had a, everything had a god. It was all intertwined. And so I think Paul's being purposefully broad here. And he's lumping all this together. He is lumping together strict adherence to the Mosaic Law with worshiping anything that comes along. Any kind of crazy, pagan, heathen notion that you can think of. He's lumping them all together. He's calling them the same thing. Because in his mind, they might as well be the same thing because they are both weak and they are both worthless. These, these false gods, right? Powerless, right? Paul knew and, and said, they're not really gods. You're, you're worshiping what you think are gods and they're not really gods. They're, they're, they're weak. They have no power. They have no worth. They have no value. They can't do anything for you. And he says, you know what? Your own scrupulous adherence to the law, just as weak, just as powerless, no worth, no value. It will not accomplish for you what you think it will. It won't give you the assurance and the security that you're looking for. But what will it do for you? What will adding a rigorous obedience to your faith in Christ, what will that do for you? It's worse than you think. Verse 11 seems awfully harsh maybe even a little over the top. He's just upset and he's, you know, just kind of spouting off, right? I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul is a minister of the gospel with a specific calling to take the gospel to Gentiles, to pagans just like these Galatians with the end goal, with the purpose of his ministry being folks coming to a place where they would believe the gospel, where they would place their faith in Christ. And Paul says, if you add your obedience to your faith in Christ, my labor has been in vain. I have failed. I've mentioned before this this series in Galatians has been a bit eye-opening for me. Because in the past, 
I had viewed the stakes here of, of adding religious performance to your faith in Christ. I had sort of, well, you know, what's at stake here? What's the worst that could happen? Well, I used to think, well, the worst that could happen is you would just be a joyless Christian. Perhaps a Christian who lacked assurance. One who was, who was despairing, right? Never feeling like you, you've done enough or, or wondering. Or, or on the other hand, if you feel like you're you know, doing pretty good, right? Then you could become an arrogant Christian. But a few times in this letter, Paul has poked a hole in that line of thinking. Because what's really at stake here is not the level of joy you experience as a Christian, but whether you are a Christian or not. That's what's at stake. See, if you're adding your performance to your faith in Christ because you're not fully confident that what Christ did was enough, then your faith is no longer in Jesus. Your faith is in what you added to Jesus. And the Scriptures are abundantly clear that it is only faith in Jesus that saves. In the end, according to Paul's argument, a person enslaved to their own performance and obedience is every bit as lost as a godless, irreligious heathen. The super-duper moral obedient person is no better off than the pagan. In fact... The pagan might even be better off. Say what? <laughs> I, I hope that messes with your categories a little bit. It needs to. But, but think about it. All right? The heathen, godless, irreligious person on one side and the buttoned-up, moral, upright person who claims faith in Christ, but also adds their strict adherence to the law as a necessary requirement on the other hand. Of those two, who is more likely to recognize their lostness? Who is more likely to sense how very far from God they are? See, it's the moral, obedient, upright person who's in more danger than the pagan. Our third point, real security only comes from being known by God. Now, why were the Galatians taking this disastrous step in the first place? What allowed them to be duped, to be fooled into adding the law to their faith in Christ as a requirement? They wanted to be sure. They wanted security. They, they wanted to, to know they were okay with God. But Paul is saying, you know what, guys? A second form of slavery 
will not do for you what you think it will do. The only thing that will do that, the only key to you getting security and assurance is in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. I thought so much about this this week. And there ended up being a little bit of a progression. There were kind of two layers of my thinking about this. The first was just about God's initiative in our salvation. Obviously, it's a huge theme throughout Scripture. But even in these last few verses we've looked at, last week in in, in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son. A couple of verses later, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit. And now this week in verse 9, when you came to be known by God. Right? And there's something beautiful and wonderful and assuring about the fact that God started this. He sought you out. You weren't seeking Him. He sought you. You didn't love Him first. He loved you first. And, and all of that, true and, and wonderful and amazing, but there's another beautiful layer to this as well. See, Paul mentions the Galatians knowing God, but then it's like he catches himself. He says, rather, you being known by God. Now, is he correcting himself? Is he changing his mind? No, because the Galatians do come to know God. And it's more than just intellectual knowledge, because you know very often in Scripture to know someone right, is much more than knowing about them. Right? There's something intimate and personal. There's a relationship involved there. But that's not where Paul wants the focus to be. On our knowing God, right? He says, don't, don't let your focus stop there, even though that's what we often do. Right? And we place so much emphasis and so much stock in our knowing Him. Right? We, we put ourselves as the subject very often in these sentences about us and God. We put ourselves as the subject instead of Him. It's our knowing Him. It's our commitment to Him. It's, it's our love for Christ. But that's not where the assurance and the security come from. Not that we know Him, but that He knows us. See, see one of these things, our knowing Him or he knowing, Him knowing us, One of these things has ups and downs. One of these things changes hourly, if not every minute. One comes and goes, ebbs and flows, but the other is solid as a rock. It's not going anywhere. It's immovable. It's unchangeable. It's steady. It's sure and firm. That's why Paul says, rather... See, if that's our mindset, that we are known by Him, then we won't be looking anywhere else for assurance and security. We won't need to bolster our assurance or feel more secure if if we have our hearts and our minds wrapped around the, the fact that He 
knows us, that we are known by him. Um, I'm using, uh, one of the commentaries I'm using is is Tim Keller, uh, the pastor out of uh, New York City, and he summed it up so beautifully. He said, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. Friends, that's it. That's it. It's not your commitment to Christ that's going to get you through. It's His commitment to you. It it made me think so much about the hymn that we sing, I I Hear the Words of Love, especially these last two verses. All right, so here's this, this first one. My love is oft times low. My joy ebbs and flows. But peace with Him, constant, remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. Last verse in that one. I change. He changes not. The Christ can never die. What He has accomplished for me is done. It's finished. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sits there. He rules and reigns in power. Nothing will ever change that. Nothing will ever change what he has done and accomplished for me in my place in the gospel. His love, not mine, is the resting place. Right? Today's the Sabbath. Today's a day of rest. That doesn't mean go home and take a nap. Right? I mean, you can. I might. Right? That's not what Sabbath rest is about. Right? Sabbath rest is resting in the completed and the finished work of Jesus that He did for you. You don't have to strive any longer. You don't have to wonder, am I okay? You can rest. His love, not mine, is the resting place. His truth, not mine, the time. So what do we do with this? Practically speaking, what does this look like? We've got to remind ourselves of it again and again and again and again and again. That being known by Him is the source of security and assurance. So what's that look like? Reminding yourself of that. Is that, is that talking to yourself? Is it saying, hey self, remember, right? Sure, that's not going to hurt, right? But where are you going to get the things that you say to yourself? Right? You're going to get them from God's Word, like. What is the, the, the point of our little Trinity reading together thing? What is the point and purpose of, of trying to take in some of God's Word every day? Say that we did it? It, it? it could be part of the problem. It could be giving us some assurance and some security. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It could be a part of the problem but used rightly, man, I am looking every day. Where are some of those reassurances about Him having known me? About Him loving me first? About Him seeking me out? I I need to find those every day. Those are the things I want to highlight, I want to underline, I want to memorize, I want to meditate on. Those are the kinds of things that I want to tell to myself. Self. (laughs) 
He sought you out. He started this. He's not going to leave you high and dry. He did this. He began this work in you. He'll finish it. To not fall back into slavery. To not turn again to the things that are weak and worthless, trying to find assurance, trying to find security. That will be a daily battle for as long as we live. And here is your weapon for that battle. Here it is. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you take this shocking and provocative argument that Paul makes? That trusting in our own performance is no better than believing in false gods. Would you bring the reality of that to to bear on every heart in this room? And Holy Spirit, would you bring that knowledge to the proper end? Would you do in each one of us what you desire to do? until our assurance and our security is only found in the assurance of knowing that you have known us first and fully in what your Son has accomplished for us. Make us ready to feed on Christ at the table. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing.